Hey, welcome to the Prairie Pod. This is Megan Bennett. I'm an ecologist with the DNR, and I'm sitting here with my co-host... Jessica Peterson. Jess, what do you do for the DNR? I am the Prairie Habitat Research Scientist. Super smart one, too. And we've got a packed room here today. We've got a whole bunch of people huddled around our fancy recording studio. We're in the Medelia recording studio today, a.k.a. the Medelia Library. Taking it on the road. Taking it on the road. And we're sitting here with some talented and awesome guest speakers. Who we got here today? Oh, I'm Lindsay Messenger. Um, I'm a wildlife research biologist with the Farmland Wildlife and Populations Research Group. Mike Worland. I'm a non-game biologist with the DNR based out of Hutchinson. And I'm Nicole Davros, the group leader for the Farmland Wildlife Populations and Research Group, uh, formerly the Upland Game Project leader for the same group. And we have all these talented folks in here with us today because it's the last podcast episode. All good things have to come to an end. I know it's upsetting, but true. It's This is our last one. So we brought in the big guns. We brought in some of our favorite scientists. <laughs> Mike's laughing at me because he, he's not sure if he's a big gun, but I he is. I know you're sincere. I know you're sincere. Yeah, it's legit. So today's podcast topic, what we're going to talk about, this is my all-time favorite episode title, which kind of sounds like I'm giving myself a compliment because I came up with these, but just stamped an approval on this. It's called Pheasants, Feathers, and Guns. We already had some sass earlier where I was notified by email that pheasants also have feathers, so that's good. We do know that, (laughs) but it just, the alliteration, I couldn't resist it. So today we're going to talk a little bit uh, about pheasants. We're going to talk a little bit about fall hunting season, and then the feathers part are grassland birds, and uh, yeah, I already talked about what the guns part was. little so. nod to Jared Diamond. Guns, germs, and steel. Oh, I, was, that, I didn't that, That's what you meant, right? Yeah, yeah that's yeah. obviously. Mm-hmm. Yep, that's definitely what I meant. Jess is just right in my head. I was like, what are we talking about? So we're just going to jump. You didn't even know. You made this amazing connection. I made this amazing connection. What is it? What is Guns, Germs, and Steel? What's it about? It's about the fate of human societies. Kind of important. Is it it fiction or is it nonfiction? No, it's nonfiction. Oh, I don't read nonfiction. (laughs) (laughs) I'm a scientist. I don't read nonfiction off off the clock. I, I only like to watch Disney movies off the clock. Daily life is a struggle. Okay, now that we know way more information about my personal life than we need to know, (laughs) I should ask Jess some questions about hers. Nope. Nope. All right, we're jumping right in for our last episode. We're going to start with Nicole Davros, and we're going to talk a little bit about the pheasant research that's going on in the DNR. We're going to get all the deets from her. So, Nicole, tell us, start first by telling us, you told us who you are and your job title, but tell us a little bit about the work you do as group leader. So, as group leader... um my job is to sort of, uh, well, I guess sort of lead the group, help coordinate the activities of our entire group, which is both feathers and fur um, in our office. So on the feather side, we cover pheasants and turkeys. On the fur side, we cover deer and elk out of our office. So my job as group leader is to help um, manage the workloads of our staff scientists and biologists and uh, coordinate, I shouldn't say coordinate the research projects, help um, get those research projects developed and up through the chain for approval, for funding. Um, And then a lot of what I do is try to run interference on a lot of the administrative tasks so that they can just focus on science and do sciencing. Um, 
But as the project leader, um, previous to this, I developed two research projects um, that uh, were related to pheasants. The first is a pheasant habitat selection and demography project, looking at pheasant survival rates in various habitat types, or not habitat types, various patches of habitat, trying to look at how diversity impacts pheasant survival and reproduction. And then the other research project is looking at the potential for insecticide drift um, to impact our grass and wildlife, including pheasants. When you talked about diversity, back up for a second so I make sure I understand. What kind of diversity are you talking about? So the diversity we're looking at for that project is trying to springboard off of a previous project. Our manager spent a lot of time and money trying to get more plant diversity into our prairie reconstructions. Um, and some of the techniques they've used have good results. Sometimes they don't have great results. And part of that is because when they try to plant into warm season grass mixtures, um, it's pretty tough to get forbs to establish. So we had a project that when I came on board was kind of wrapping up, didn't have great results. And I wanted to take a step back from that project and look at how much diversity really matters for pheasants. Um, as being one of the, you know, one of many species that we try to manage for, um, but a, a group that a lot of people are interested in um, making sure that there's a lot of pheasants on the landscape. We wanted to focus on when we do a reconstruction, how many forbs do we need to have in that seeding mixture? Um, and uh, do we see differences in survival rates? So does putting more money into a forb mix, a high diverse forb mix, which we know is gonna be good for pollinators and some of the other critters out there, um, do we really see better um, pheasant recruitment, better pheasant survival when we when we do that? So it's a very pheasant-centric project, but one that a lot of people are interested in. I like it. So tell me a little bit more about pheasant biology and maybe what the mechanisms are that you're thinking about that might, how, how increasing forbs in our plantings might help pheasants. So pheasants, for anyone who's not aware, are non-native uh, to Minnesota and to the U.S., but they were um, established and could probably argue now that they're a naturalized species. Um, and so they're, they're here to stay, and um, they, but being non-native, they don't have some of the same adaptations that our native grouse do. So um, they, in Minnesota, are, you know, reaching some of the, the upper limits of their range in terms of winter survival. Um, they don't have the feathered tarsi like native grouse would have. What's a tarsi? A tarsi is a, basically a feathered leg foot part. I like it um, so fancy. <laughs> like, have you seen my tarsi? Mm, so, look at that. I mean, <laughs> next time you see a picture of something like an owl or um, a grouse, look at their legs and they have feathering that extends farther down. Our pheasants don't have that so <laughs> they're more prone to being getting exposed to the cold. Um, and so, and they're also non-migratory, unlike say prairie chickens that are short distance migrants, they kind of have different winter and summer habitat use. Pheasants basically live the same, in the same half mile, if they're lucky, square mile, if they're really adventurous, um, for their entire life, which is pretty short. It could be a year and a half, maybe up to three years, but they don't move very far in their lifetime. They're non-migratory where they're born is pretty much where they're gonna be raised and stay to nest. Um, so they need everything that they need to survive in that little area. So that includes both summer habitat, um, fall habitat, winter habitat, and spring habitat. So you can, you can kind of think about it as the uh, breeding season, which would be spring and summer, and then the, the non-breeding season, which would be fall and winter. So everything they need needs to be there. That's, pheasants are pretty basic. They don't go very far um, and they, 
yeah, they need everything they need right there. So they're a basic bird. Basic bird. But I guess in terms of other biology, they're, you know, being a game bird, they're, they're pretty prolific if you give them the right conditions. So they lay a lot of eggs. They have kind of a, a live fast, die young strategy. Like I said, they, they're lucky if they live three years. Um, so and s they don't actually put all their eggs in one basket because they actually do parasitize other birds, other pheasants, and some other species. But uh, for the most part, they put a lot, of, a lot of eggs in one basket when they do breed. So large clutch size, try to produce a lot of kids um, because they don't know if they'll make it to the next year to, to, to breed. So talk to us a little bit more. You mentioned you've got these two research projects, main ones. I'm sure there are others that you have going on. Talk to us a little bit about how you assess the things that you're trying to assess. Like how do you look at whether or not what side, like what clutch of eggs they have and whether or not pheasants are surviving from year to year. Like how, how do you actually do that work? What are you doing? And, and how many pictures of their non-feathered tarsi do you have? A few. <laughs> A few with missing toes, too. Do you want to see those? <laughs> oh, it's always a good time on the podcast. I can't answer that question. <laughs> so they get into fights. They, they lose a few toes. Awesome. A few um, toes. So, yeah, so pheasants are really hard to detect and monitor. Um, and that's something that's really important to keep in mind. So when I developed the project... Um, Pretty much off the bat knew that if I wanted to try to find some nests and look at reproduction that we probably needed to radio tag some birds. So our hens are radio collared. It's old-fashioned technology. It's the old VHF radio collars um, with a crew of technicians out to, to track them down using antennas. And uh, so we basically, through the use of radio telemetry, know where our birds are and then monitor them that way. But you have to be on site, right, with the type of telemetry that you're using. Like, you have to be physically Correct. out there. You can't, you don't know where they are when you're just sitting in the office. Correct. And so I don't know if Lindsay wants to contribute some, some thoughts there that in Nebraska, they actually tried to use some of the GPS technology and they had a really rough go of it just because my understanding is the technology just isn't there yet for pheasants. Yeah, it's not so much the technology, really. It's actually the, well, it's the technology a little bit. It's the battery size, mostly. Batteries are heavy. Um, you know, when you're putting... Putting things on animals, you want to stay pretty light. So, so the general rule of thumb is it should it should be, you know, less than five percent of their body weight, and five percent is really the high edge. So you try to stay around three percent of their body weight for something that you put on an animal. So for a pheasant, if you wanted to monitor them for an entire year, you would have to have a battery that would last an entire year to collect these GPS points. So pheasants are just on the cusp of being heavy enough to support that. And um, so yeah, GPS GPS stuff hasn't worked yet. We can't be um, you know, armchair, office, computer uh, monitors quite like the deer crew. Darn, you still have to go in the field. That's right. Oh, <laughs> we have to be outside. Our, <laughs> our deer people just get to sit back and download the data from their chairs. Oh, That's the right. deer people. <laughs> There's a little bit of a rivalry going on in the DNR <laughs> between the game no. species. We, we have fun with it. Um, but the, you know, and then... You know, on prairie chickens, they've been able to use solar-powered uh, GPS transmitters. And for pheasants, they're just in a little bit thicker grass, taller grass. And they, when they sit on their nest, they sit for a really long period of time. They maybe take one or two breaks during the day. It's called a recess um, for Wait, a short period of they time. They call their break a recess? They call their break a recess. They get off to go take recess. <laughs> um, and How many feed. games of tag do they play during their recess? It is all about staying alive. Incubation <laughs> is very energetically costly. They need to get out and feed and get back on those eggs. Um, but the, the solar-powered GPS transmitters um, in Nebraska, my understanding is they did not have enough time to recharge. And when they were in the grass, they were searching for a signal that they just basically died right away. So 
Um, so yeah, the technology just isn't there yet. But so we use going back to your original question, we use old-fashioned VHF radio telemetry to track our birds and get some of the vital rate information that we have. So you're just wrapping this up, this this main project that you have. What are some of the interesting things that you're starting to find? Well, that's what Lindsay and I are working on hard, uh, going to be working on pretty hard over the next couple of months. But so far, the little bit of data we've been able to dig into um, is showing a pattern that <clears throat> hens aren't necessarily selecting nest sites. So, so we're looking at several different pieces of information. The first part we've started to look at is looking at nesting information, uh, nest site selection and nest survival. So the data so far is showing that hens aren't necessarily selecting nest sites with more forb cover, but when they do, they're more likely to be successful. So like that it. right there shows that diversity might matter. Having more forbs um, from a pheasant perspective, a pheasant nesting perspective, might mean that your nest is more likely to be successful, not be detected by predators, and that you're more likely to hatch those chicks out. Does it also mean, I mean, I know maybe you guys haven't studied this exactly, but does it also mean that, so like when you have little bitty fluffy pheasants out there, they got to eat. And so mm -hmm. if there's forbs on the landscape, usually that means that there's insects and things that they can eat. Is there a link there or how is that working or we don't know? Well, that's the next piece of the data that we're going to break into. Um, so we don't have any results for that yet. But what I would throw out as a caveat is we always think that food is a limiting factor. And I know we're dealing with a game bird who grows pretty quickly and you certainly can have um, starvation, especially if it's interacting with something like weather, you have a severe storm for rains for three days and those chicks need to be kept warm, especially when they're pretty young um, by the hen. So they're not getting out to feed. Um, but what's just as important as having enough food to eat is being able to catch that food. And so that, again, that habitat structure, um, and maybe that diversity leads to a structure that allows those chicks to run and catch the food. Cause it does no good to have a bunch of caterpillars to feed on if you can't run and catch those. Well, caterpillars probably aren't going, that's a bad example. Caterpillars, they should be able to catch. <laughs> you just picked the sloth of insects. <laughs> I wasn't going to flag you on it, but I was like, oh, those are some real slow pheasant chicks. Grasshoppers. Grasshoppers. <laughs> Beetles. You not only need to have some really tasty grasshoppers, but you need to be able to run and catch them. And so that's where things like management actions like prescribed burns or grazing or hang should be really helpful because it's going to reduce that litter layer and help them be able to run and catch those things. So it's one thing to have enough food, it's another thing to actually be able to catch the food. Oh, I like it. Sorry, I got so I got so into what you were saying, I forgot that I'm supposed to ask you a question. So talk to me a little bit about what you think, what does the future hold for pheasants in Minnesota? I wanna elaborate on this a little bit. We had a, a pheasant summit um, a while back, the Governor Dayton called a pheasant summit and we're, concerned. We're concerned about what pheasant hunting is going to look like in Minnesota as we keep losing grassland and things like this are happening. We're losing some habitat. And so we want to know what we can do so that we can keep having these hunter experiences and so that we can keep grass on the landscape. And so we can keep this part of Minnesota with all the opportunities that we're able to experience here. I mean, I love hunting. I'm terrible at pheasant hunting, but I do enjoy it, especially with Lindsay, because if I go with Lindsay, I know that both of us are gonna miss. And so it makes me feel better from the, from the outset. Well, I'm only less... missing because my pants are stuck on the barbed wire. Like, what happens to me? 
there's just less pressure and there's more laughter and I like it because <laughs> I'm always the person I walk out and the pheasant flushes in front of me and I'm still busy going son of a biscuit because <laughs> it's so terrifying but so I want to make sure that people can have those son of a biscuit moments in Minnesota so tell me a little bit what are you what are you thinking what does the future hold for pheasants I think a lot of people have son of a biscuit moments um <laughs> So if I can generalize, I would say that you know, we always talk about two things that are important for pheasants. It's habitat and weather. And we can't really do anything to control the weather. So we need habitat to buffer um, you know, everything else that happens to our population. So habitat really is key. And for our current research project, we're not even focusing on like landscape stuff necessarily because we know that having grass on the landscape matters. That work's already been done. And for pheasants in an agricultural agriculturally dominated state like Minnesota, that's Conservation Reserve Program, that's CRP. Um, so, you know, I think in a state like Minnesota, the future of pheasants really is tied to what happens on our private lands and Conservation Reserve Program and other farm bill programs, as well as finding, honestly, win-win solutions to work with producers. Well, thanks, Nicole. That was really helpful. Um, I think we're going to switch gears a little bit now and talk about roadside surveys. So, Lindsay, tell us a little bit about the roadside survey. Every August, the DNR conducts this survey. And what is it? How do they, How is it done? Yeah, so the August roadside surveys are actually a kind of cool data set we have. Um, so I think one of the coolest things about them is that, is that we've been doing it since 1955. Uh, so it's a survey that we do the first two weeks of August. Um, we do them every year. And it's primarily done in the farmland zone of Minnesota. Um, and so our wildlife managers and DNR law enforcement staff are the ones who actually are the boots on the ground data collectors for this. Um, and so what it is, is, is they wake up and go out uh, relatively early in the morning. They'll drive a 25 mile route. Um, the routes we've tried to mean as consistent as possible over time. Um, and that's important for comparing data as, as time goes. And we've had to adjust some of these routes to keep them more out in the country we try to get them off pavement um, but as things have become urbanized we've had to adjust them a little and, and drop a few routes entirely um, but they'll drive the 25 mile route and then they'll record um, sightings basically of of it, wildlife that we're interested in so um, I mean in the context here of course they're recording uh, pheasants that they see um, out near the road and then uh, we do have other critters on the survey too though we have um, things like doves and uh, cottontail rabbits, jackrabbits, sandhill cranes, um, partridge. partridge, yes, uh, I think, is that it? Deer. Oh yes, deer, too. Um, so yeah, just, they'll drive along and as they, as they see things, they'll stop and they'll record, um, the segment of the route where they found it and, and what they saw and how many. And they're just alive things? So it's yeah, we don't record roadkill. All right, because I could have been winning at this survey if I did it. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's not a roadkill survey. Okay, these are, these are living things. We want to know who's still in the population, not who's been taken out. <laughs> right, right, good to know. So, how do you compile the data, and then what are what have the results been showing? Um, so yeah, so like I said, there's there's a lot of routes. Um, like last year, we had 171 routes. And so we'll get all of the paper data sheets from staff, we'll enter them in um, into our database, and then we have certain statistics that we'll run. Um, those just kind of summarize data uh, within different uh, zones. And then um, 
they work to give us basically an index of what the population is and then we'll compare our number from from a certain year of running the routes to sort of the the shorter and long-term averages so um, like what have they been doing over the last five years versus ten years versus um, you know the entire life of the survey and, and that kind of gives us an idea roughly of of trends in the population so it's not saying how many pheasants we have out there it's just saying what what is the population trend been over time so Lindsay you talked a little bit about uh, trends over time can you expand on that a little bit more and talk about how pheasant populations have changed through through time since this route survey route's been happening yeah so I mean um, I guess when I say change through time a lot of that has to do with what's happened to our habitat over time um, and so if you think back to the 19, mid-1950s when this survey route started, um, we had more diversified farming practices. So you can think of that as smaller fields, more field edges. We had pasture out there. We had small grains. Um, we just had a lot more diversity on the, in the farming and ranching communities. And so our pheasant populations really did well with that type of landscape. Um, and then sort of over time, as we moved into this sort of feed the world um, programs and mindsets, uh, you know, our field sizes got bigger. We lost a lot of that diversity in our um, farm plantings and, and our pheasant populations responded to that as well. So the, so the trend for, for populations went down. Um, and then in the mid to late uh, 80s, um, we had the CRP program was initiated through the Farm Bill um, and, and it took a few years between when that program was um, given funding to when we actually had habitat on the ground that pheasants could respond to. Um, but really since since the, the mid 80s all the way up to 2007 when we had our peak CRP, we really saw increases in, in pheasant abundance when we got more, more grass on the landscape. Um, and then since 2007, uh, we've been losing CRP acres and we've seen our, our pheasant indexes um, go down along with that trend as well. So that's that's how the populations have changed over time. Hmm. It's kind of a sad story. We're just going down. I don't like it. But well, we can do something about it. That's a happy story, too, because we have <laughs> the ability to have more CRP acres. And so it kind of goes back to what Nicole was saying earlier, that what we do in public lands and private lands is really going to matter in terms of the future of pheasants in Minnesota. See what I did there? Future of pheasants. It's not my first rodeo. <laughs> All right. Speaking of alliteration, we're just going to switch gears here. And we're going to jump right into the feathers section of the podcast. Mike, you've been awfully quiet. It's weird to me when you're this quiet in a room. Do you feel outnumbered? Absolutely. I'm <laughs> a bunch of strong female scientists up in here with you. I know. making you feel I mean, today. It's a, I like it. But <laughs> okay. it, does, it does intimidate me. That's absolutely true. Good. It I should. just want to point out again that you did it again. You said, we're going to switch into the feathers portion of the podcast. <laughs> I know. I, I did already it. were in the feathers I did portion. it again. I mean, confessions fly... <laughs> really? Not well. I Not hit well. one with a car. Like, they can fly and fly incredibly I, well. They can just run really well. As they well. just don't want to fly. I mean, what I really think I meant is that I was already channeling what Nicole said about their lack of feathered legs. And so Tarsy. they're just not as feathered tarsi as other things. That. I didn't know it until she said <laughs> it, but I'm going to use it right now. So let's talk about things with some feathers on their tarsi and otherwise. Uh, Mike... <laughs> You, your specialty, you're a non-game biologist with the DNR, and your specialty is grassland birds. If anybody knows Mike, you've seen him on the prairie, binoculars in hand. Don't worry, he's not looking at you. He's looking at a bird behind you. I might you. be. I might be. <laughs> <laughs> Way to make it weird. Yeah. 
So tell me a little bit, what are grassland birds? Uh, no reason to make it complicated. Grassland birds need grass for some part of their life cycle. Uh, here in North America, it usually means that they breed or nest in grass. You know, bear in mind, if you're walking through a grassland, you might hear birds that aren't necessarily grassland birds. You know, if they, if they need, if they specialize in wetlands or if they specialize in shrubs, um, you know, for example, a red-winged blackbird, you might hear a lot of them walking through the grass, but they're not a grassland bird. They, they breed in wetlands and shrubs around the wetlands. Uh, uh, but, you know, a, a meadowlark is a grassland bird, an upland sandpiper is a grassland bird, and, and you, they, it's just things that specialize in grasslands. Yep. Cool. Yep. So why should we care about these things? I mean... Well, <clears throat> should we... How long do we have on this? <laughs> <laughs> ten minutes. You, we, have we ten have minutes. you got ten, you got ten minutes to talk about why we should care. Make <laughs> the people care, long course on that question. But I'll make it easy for you. you can, there's one, I'll break it down into two different reasons, okay? You can care about them because they're really cool, because our lives are enriched, and, and, and in fact, our lives will be all the poorer because of their absence. You know, you walk out into a prairie, everybody here knows this, and then, well, maybe you don't. If, if you have to get there, like, before 8, Megan, so. Um, <laughs> it's a lot. It got shady in this office all of a um, sudden, real shady in here. If you, get there, if you can get there before 8, the meadowlarks are singing. It's just, it's beautiful. So imagine that without the grassland birds there. It's, it's, be it's, quiet. It's, it would be quiet. <laughs> be peaceful. <laughs> no, you're missing my point. Okay. Um, we have a lot of awe-inspiring moments on the podcast like do. this, where people are describing beautiful scenes well, out on the prairie. Awe-inspiring may be, it might be a little bit of a stretch. But, but it just, is. Uh, it is awe-inspiring. Beautiful okay. moments happen You're hearing the all these birds out there on the prairie. No, that's awe-inspiring. That's what I'm saying. My description of it is not awe-inspiring. No, it was. It oh. was. I, I disagree with it you. It was good. Okay, so that's one reason. Now, a lot of people aren't going to be convinced by that. So then you go to another reason, which is that we don't want these species to become endangered, federally listed endangered species. That's, that's, a, that's a lose-lose for everybody. <clears throat> so even if you don't necessarily care that much about grassland birds, per se, you might care, or I guess this is a, th a third reason, Something's causing those birds to decline, and those things are going to have repercussions on everything else. Uh, you know, pheasants, of course, they're a grassland bird. We can't separate them from this discussion about grassland birds. Um, but, you know, water quality, if, if habitat is being lost, that's going to affect water quality. Uh, that's just one example. We'd be overwhelmed with grasshoppers. The, the prairie would be even noisier than, than you think it would <laughs> no, be. No, it wouldn't be peaceful. They provide an important ecosystem service. Absolutely. Eating grasshoppers. Eating grasshoppers. That's a good example. And yep. uh, uh, mosquitoes. Minnesota's bird, state bird, mosquito. Very true. Very I've true. heard that a time or two. The good part about working in the prairie is that mosquitoes are less, which is also why I love prairies. But we, we digress. So you said, you mentioned that we don't want them to become endangered. Are you, aren't there some grassland birds right now that are endangered? And talk to me a little bit more about the group as a whole, what's been happening to them? Because aren't they declining? Well, uh, they are the most declining guild in North America. What's a guild? A group of, of wildlife grouped in, based on some criteria. Uh, but as far as a habitat guild, like compared to forest birds, 
compared to ocean birds. I mean, compared to all those different kind of habitat guilds, grassland birds are declining at a steeper rate than any of them. Their habitat has been converted into agricultural lands or it's been converted into urban habitat developed, you know. But overall, <clears throat> they've lost their habitat uh, for the most part that they had, that was covering this landscape back uh, pre-European settlement. We've got uh, isolated little patches of habitat that remain for them and that are supporting them right now. Well, I should rephrase that. We have, we have some admittedly depressing evidence that that habitat is not doing a good job of supporting them. The project I'm working on with the DNR uh, is our long-term prairie monitoring project. And we're finding that in these intact protected remnants, their populations are still declining within them. Even though their, their, their habitat is not being lost within that remnant, they're protected, their numbers are still going down. And so that obviously that means something is going on in the surrounding landscape that is affecting those birds. We know they're affected by uh, habitat in the surrounding landscapes, as Nicole and Lindsay talked about for, for pheasants. Um, we know they might, be protect, uh, they might be affected by pesticide use in those surrounding landscapes. And, and we know there are other, there are other factors going on uh, in their wintering grounds that are probably affecting them. But, uh, you know, and again, climate is probably playing a role. But the thing we can do something about right now is probably habitat. We can we can restore their habitat. Maybe I'm going too far down the road. Um, nope, that was our next question. Yeah, what can we do? What can we do well, to help these guys? I'll, I'll talk about at a small level, what, what, not at a small level, at an individual person level, what we can do, okay? And the, the easiest, most straightforward thing is to buy grass-fed beef. We need to, we need, I mean, uh, Lindsay and, and Nicole both touched on this making win-win situations in, in, on private property and in our agricultural sector so that they are developing habitat for pheasants and for these other grassland bird species. And a very, a very simple, straightforward way of doing that is to grow our cattle on grass and, and at the same time do that in a way that provides some habitat for these birds. That, that for me, that's one thing that provides some hope uh, for these grassland bird species. Did you just say that you feel hopeful when you get to eat meat? Is that what I heard you say? Absolutely. Like the future of the grassland birds in Minnesota is based on how much meat Mike can consume. Yes, yes. Um, <laughs> and, and I was I was tempted. I should have done it. I should have brought a bowl of soup for each of us. But with, I've been eating, preparing every week uh, because I'm lazy and I can't cook food in the evenings. So like on Sunday, I make this giant batch of, of chili with, with grass-fed beef. And then eat it throughout the week. Are you telling me that every week all you're eating are bowls of chili? <laughs> yes. <laughs> for yes. the birds. This is dedication I to all of our birds. listeners. For this is birds. dedication right here. For the, for the birds. You know what make it even better for the birds? Occasionally make it vegetarian chili. <laughs> it's Mike, not, Mike's I'm, not. I can't even comment on Mike's it. unwilling to go there. That's not in his moral code. He needs, he's doing it for the birds. This is the power of conservation right here. Bowls of chili brought to you by Mike Warland, yes. saving one grassland bird at a time yep. through each supper. So bowl. I'm serious about that. Grass-fed beef. <clears throat> but in addition, you know, everything in this world revolves around money, right? <clears throat> there's, there's two things I want to say about money. Number one, <clears throat> the legacy amendment means a lot to us as far as conservation. 
And so I want to thank the citizens of Minnesota for voting the legacy amendment in. That's a big help. <clears throat> and secondly, and this is my shameless, well, I shouldn't say it's shameless, um, uh, but I want to promote my program, the non-game wildlife program that I work in. And so the only reason I can do what I'm doing, the only reason I can monitor prairie wildlife and help conserve them is because of donations given by Minnesota citizens to the non-game wildlife program on our, especially on your income taxes. When you, when you donate to that loon checkoff, that goes, that goes to us. That's all I got. Those simple things, um, those simple steps for conserving grassland birds. I like it. Thanks, Mike. Uh-huh. All right, it's time. <clears throat> I know, I'm ready. Are you ready, Jess? Yep, I'm ready. Let's science to the literature! All right, this is part of the podcast where Jess and I recommend a book, a blog, or a paper. And today we made our guests work extra hard and they gave us their favorite papers based on all of the fun pheasants, feathers, and guns things that we've been talking about today. So we're going to just round robin it with y'all and you are going to just give us the highlights of a paper that you recommend. Nicole, we'll start with you. Okay, so I'm going to recommend two things. One is the Benton Kiavachi and Ward 2013 paper, which is a meta-analysis of... Um, uh, looking at nest survival and brood parasitism on grassland birds. And the other is a entire Studies in Even Biology volume, number 12, um, which looks at uh, using video surveillance to, to look at who the nest predators are. And the short answer is that it's not always the suspects as usual, um, that nest predation uh, varies by region and by landscape, and, um, and so there are a lot of different nest predators out there. And the reason this is important is that predation is by far the biggest factor impacting uh, grassland bird productivity, uh, whether we're talking about pheasants or other grassland birds. A lot of nests fail um, due to nest predation. That's just the major cause of failure, which inevitably leads to the question of why not just control the predators, to which my response is um, that predators are people too, and they want a good meal just like the rest of us, but also uh, that it's just ecologically inappropriate um, on a large scale. It takes a lot of time and money to manage for predators and you can remove one predator and because it's not the suspects as usual you're just going to open the door to another predator to move in so um, I really like to kind of geek out about talking about nest predation mm -hmm. and grassland birds and so those are the ones that I'm recommending. Lindsay you're up. All right well I'm going to do a little sort of shameless uh, self-promotion so um, I, I want to talk about a paper that I'm actually a co-author on one of many um, so it's I don't know if you want the name of it or what, but it's a Wazola et al. It's called Translating um, Statistical Species Habitat Models into Interactive Decision sp Support Tools. Um, but in a nutshell, the reason why I really like this paper is that oftentimes we as scientists or researchers will make these models, <laughs> these kind of complicated models. Um, and for, so, for instance, this paper talks about a pheasant, pheasant abundance model that we created in Nebraska. Um, which is great, and we can do that, um, but then managers often say, well, what does this model mean to me? How can I use it? Um, and oftentimes, you know, they care about pheasant abundance, but they also care about what it costs to put habitat on the landscape and how much do they need to make a difference. Um, so, so this paper talks about a, a package that we actually, a, a computer package that we designed to help um, visualize this and be interactive with managers so they can pull up a county um, <clears throat> They can look at the land cover um, and then they can say, well, if I add, you know, um, 
a certain percentage of grassland, how is this going to affect pheasant abundance? And so um, I, I think it's important that we as researchers think about how managers can use information. And so this is a cool paper that talks about that. And I'll just add that Lindsay might think it's a shameless plug, but I think it's an important one because everything I just talked about is kind of that mechanism, right? It's that really sciencey part, but it doesn't translate for managers. And when they come to me, when people come to me and say, well, which patch of land has more value for pheasants? You know, I always like to say, well, there's not a one-size-fits-all approach. It doesn't matter. But the work that Lindsay and her colleagues did really takes that sort of that mechanistic approach and scales it up to a usable tool for managers. And, um, and some of our DNR managers here in Minnesota have already looked at the tool and they thought it was an amazing resource. So um, they should be pretty proud of that, that work, even though it's Nebraska specific. Well, it's Nebraska specific, but actually this paper talks about right. how to, um, I mean, the code's all available for designing this package. Right. So you could literally take any model and put right. it into this <laughs> and make an interactive tool. So that's what I think is really cool, that's cool. about this paper. That's cool. Yeah, so it, it just, <coughs> all that nerdy stuff I talked about in terms of nest predation scales it up and makes it a usable tool, which is great. I like it. Mike, can you can you top that? What do you got? Absolutely not. <coughs> but uh, <laughs> I just set the bar low. <laughs> no, in fact, <coughs> this this paper doesn't have anything to do with me per se. But uh, Brennan and Club Kolbes. In fact, you know I have nothing to do with it because I can't pronounce the second author's name. <coughs> Kobleski. Kobleski. Anyway, they do a nice job of summarizing uh, the status of grassland birds and their threats. Bearing in mind that this is a, it's already somewhat dated because it's 05, and there's kind of a southern western bias because they're from Texas. But what I really like about this paper, well, okay, I'm gonna start by saying my one criticism is North American grassland birds an unfolding conservation crisis? Question. Question mark. It's not <laughs> a question. It's an unfolding conservation crisis at this point in my, well, it's not an opinion. I think it is, but. Um, they, they, they have some real real reasons to be optimistic, some potential solutions. They talk about the North American model of wildlife management, so what we did for game species, especially uh, early 20th century when their populations were plummeting. Uh, there's reasons to assume we can use some of those same tools to help out grassland birds. They talk about uh, using game species, which of course have, of course have a lot of funding. Uh, a lot of people care about them, so pheasants are a prime example using them as, as the uh, keystone species or the umbrella species or whatever you want to call it. Uh, and then under them, we can provide habitat for all these other grassland birds that are in trouble. Awesome. I feel smarter already. I do too. Hey, Megan, take a hike. Oh, I think I will, Jess. I think I will. So this is the part <laughs> of the podcast where we encourage you to take a hike. And go out to the prairie somewhere near you, explore public lands. These are your properties, and we want you to get the most out of them. And so, again, we put extra work onto our guest speakers, and we gave, we're going to highlight their top picks for prairies. So this is not to slight any other prairies. This is just their preference for where they like to recreate. So, Nicole, we'll start again with you. What is your pick for today's Take a Hike? Well, my pick is not one that I necessarily go to recreate in. It's more just that this is one I've spent a lot of time in uh, for our research. And so I picked the entire uh, project area south of Worthington, kind of known as the Worthington Wells Project Area. It's in the Okabina Ocheda Watershed District. And in particular, there is a series of co uh, a complex of WMAs down there, including Peterson WMA, uh, Bella WMA, and Wachter WMA. And I've just... Um, I don't necessarily go out of my way to drive there on my weekend off, 
but during our research I spent a lot of time there and there's some really scenic views. It's a great mix of upland grassland habitat as well as wetlands and um, some really scenic uh, overlooks if depending on what time of day you're out there. Nice. Lindsay? Yeah, so um, I'm gonna pick a, a, a prairie right here close to home. Um, so we're here recording in the Medelia Research Office and we're actually located on the uh, W.R. Taylor Memorial WMA. Um, and I picked this WMA because I spend a lot of time in it. <laughs> um, I look at it every day when I come to work and then um, I also uh, spend a lot of time with my dog out on this WMA. So. For me, it's, it's you know, I, I like it, it's scenic, and it gets me kind of out of my head and de-stress on a, on a daily basis. So um, sometimes you don't have to go far to have a good place to just do a little nature detox kind of thing. I love that. Sometimes you don't have to go far. We're blessed with that in Minnesota, that our public lands are nearby. Accessible. And accessible. Mm -hmm. I like it. Mike, what's your pick? Glacial Lake State Park. I love Glacial Lake State Park because... Because it's it's big, so you can take a hike out into it. It's one of the few places remaining where where you can <clears throat> walk into the middle of the park and you can look around and all you see is prairie, and that's that's rarity. That's a rarity nowadays. So it's it's got some really interesting topography. It's got lots of wetlands and lakes embedded in it. So it makes some there's some interesting uh, interesting diverse wildlife community there, and it's beautiful. It's so uh, that's that's my favorite. Really cool geology in that area too. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yet another reason I wonder. I really didn't know anything about the geology. Yeah, I mean the potholes, just all of the. Oh yeah, yeah. The potholes, glacial lakes. Yeah. Lakes caused by glaciers. Jess and I, you might have heard us giggling in the background when Mike mentioned Glacial Lakes State Park, and that has nothing to do with the state park being good or. It's, a, it's an absolutely beautiful place that I will never again visit. Yep. Uh, we, we're, I think because it's our last what? episode, I feel like uh, we're going to have to tell this story to our listeners just so that you can understand and appreciate why Jess and I have an aversion to this. So we thought that Mike picked it just to kind of poke the bear a little bit mm. at us. I don't we know actually, the story. He, he didn't know. So we're going to tell this story. So we, So some of you know who are listening that we do these native plant community trainings every year. Uh, Jess is out on the prairie with a net. She's catching things for you to look at. She's getting super excited. I'm showing you plants. I'm making up ridiculous names for them. It's it's a good time. So we're teaching you about all of the remnant uh, prairie in Minnesota. Well, when we do that, we like to camp. Yeah, we, we like, like to, to explore our state parks. Yeah, we like to see our new places and state mm -hmm. parks. Minnesota state parks are beautiful. They're some of the best state parks in the nation. I'm going to say they are the best in the nation. <laughs> I'm just going to say it. I said it. And no I, bias. Yep, no, no bias. bias. Just work for the DNR. Uh, but I love I love them. But unfortunately, Jess and I were camping. We were tent camping. And uh, we'd, ha we'd had a late night. You know, separate tents. We had separate tents. Set the scene up. Oh, yeah. So we had, we're we had this beautiful, the, the most beautiful campsite in all of Glacial Lakes State Park. And we had the entire park to ourselves because it was a Monday. Yes. I believe. Monday or Tuesday. Yeah, I think it was Tuesday. But and it was not important. It was, um, we were on top of this kind of mound in our separate tents. And just like Sun said, has set. We're sleeping soundly. Yeah, you can see as far. And so then all of a sudden, we're, we're just in the tent. And then every camper's, you know, worst nightmare. All of a sudden, you just start hearing. <laughs> 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 Huh. <laughs> huh. 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 
There was some. There was some. Then there was like some real loud running, right? Like real loud running. I I really felt the whole ground shaking. Yeah, you can feel the, the ground, ground shaking, and then all of a sudden in the in the corner you just hear like, <laughs> like real loud. And we're and I'm in the tent, and I, I just, hear ringing in my ears. And, yeah, it's <laughs> it loud. Was real loud. It was it was loud. It sounded like a kid screaming, and I'm thinking to myself when I wake up, I'm thinking. Well, somebody needs to pick that baby up. It's like crying. Oh, it's wait, three in the there's morning. There's no one else in the campground. Well, yeah, then your brain, you know, as you're waking up, your brain starts that to process. Terrifying. Yeah, and you're thinking, well, mm-hmm. why would a baby be screaming? We're back in the other campground. That's There aren't any families nobody, back here. Nobody there's there. nobody here. So then all of a sudden, you know, you, you're freaking out, basically. We're freaking out. I was and sweating. It's I was getting just closer. sweating you're buckets. Just cold sweats. And then I finally go, Jess? Yeah? Real, real quiet from the next thing. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, you hear that? Yeah, I hear yeah. it. Yeah, hear it. <laughs> so I'm like, what is it? <laughs> I don't know. Like, the other tent. So we're freaking out. And I'm like, want to get in the van? She's like, yeah. <laughs> so then you just have the panic. You know, this thing's running around. You can still hear it breathing. And I cannot get my... Sleeping bag. I can't get out of my sleeping bag. My zipper is stuck. I'm unzipping it. All I remember saying is, don't leave me in here, Jessica. Don't you leave me in here, Jessica. And so then we're trying to call Nancy, who's our other coworker and friend. She's sleeping in the van because she brought her tent poles. Classic mistake. Never do that. It's hard to put a tent up In this case, may have saved her. <laughs> may have saved her, though. It's probably great. So we call Nancy. Let's keep in mind, it's like 2 in the morning. I, I'm calling her because we want her to turn the headlights on to spook whatever this is. You know, because it sounds loud. It sounds heavy. It sounds loud. So you call Nancy at 2.30 in the morning. Hello, this is Nancy. <laughs> like, the most, like the most professional sounding. I mean, you know somebody has children when they answer the phone at 2.30 in the morning. Hello, this is Nancy. <laughs> she, what's she doing in that van? She waits, she playing cards, what's she doing? And then we're like, Nancy, we're going to need you to unlock the van and, and turn the headlights on, turn the headlights on. And she's like, just a minute, please. <laughs> best customer service ever so she uh she can't find the headlights because it's 2 30 in the morning and so she just starts what'd she do hit the panic you button? you hit the panic button on oh, your I car hit the panic button on it my did car. absolutely nothing for this critter i mean because nothing this is what the panic button sounded like me and i go is that it is that all it does because this is a serious panic moment <laughs> so so nancy shines the headlights on i'm still trying to get out of my sleeping bag jess is out of hers she's at 10 points like you i would have already were been panicking eaten. i would have yeah, been eating yeah. jess was already ready to go so then we just do this scramble and we literally dive into the van and then 10 seconds later we're like my sleeping bag because we're, we're gonna sleep in this van now so i grabbed my sleeping bag i had to go back to the tent like 16 times so then we slam the van door and nancy's like are you guys gonna sleep in here yeah <laughs> move over <laughs> jess is in the front seat she's already got it reclined she's like uh-huh <laughs> we're sleeping in here so the next day, we're looking for tracks of this thing. We, we definitely slept in the van. It took us about an hour to settle down. Nancy finally had to tell us to chill out. Like So we settled down. We called the park manager. She comes down, and she's real good. They're trained. They're trained for any kind of emergency. She starts <laughs> Biologists out, and non-biologists biologists alike. You know, they're they're trained care. for any kind of freak-out moment you might have. You are never safer than in a Minnesota State Park. And so... Uh, she starts playing us calls because we show our footprints and the footprint was big. It was huge. It was a huge Super footprint. Giant. It was, like, so we had pictures of it. And we're like, see, we did not make this up. This happened. 
So she plays a call, and she goes, was that it? And we're like, yeah, yeah, that sounds like it. Then she goes, well, let me play this other call. She plays the second call. And we're like, no, that's it. That one. That's definitely it. Because it was like a haunting. Like, it was like a it scream. Was haunting, haunting. And then it was yeah. like, yeah, it was very haunting, like <clears throat> this eerie sound. Because we're telling her we think it's a mountain lion. You know, we're like, we don't know. We don't know anything that screams like that. And so when she plays the second call, she's like, yeah, that's a fisher. So. <laughs> no, she, she even said something like, they're eight pounds. Yes, she did. She did. She was like, let me give you a biologist's biology lesson. They're eight pounds. Now, let's be clear. They are ferocious. Not to people, but they're a a medium-sized predator. Other park visitors thought it was a a baby cub. Yeah. A cub baby bear. They look like a baby bear. They have a lot of hair, a lot of fur. Yeah. They're very furry. They're very cute. They look like a really furry weasel. Until they open their mouths. They are, are in fact, a weasel. Yeah. Yeah. They they are in the weasel family. Yes, they are. So they're with badgers and Minks and other things like this. Otters, they're in the same family as otters. Same family as wolverines. Yes. But this is why Glacial Lakes State Park is cool, because it's at this interface of prairie and forest. And Mm -hmm. Savannah, it's a transition zone. And so you you kind of have this really cool cool thing happening where you've got Pope County, Gandiohai County, and fishers are actually making a comeback, even though they're a woodland species. But because of that transition zone in the Savannah, they're actually coming down into Gandiohai County and expanding their range. So it's really cool. Uh, not cool at 2.30 in the morning when you think you're going to be eaten. That is not cool. <laughs> it's worse. That was a memorable moment for you. It was. It yeah. was memorable, and so that's... Yeah, that's we, we, it's terrifying. It's still terrifying. I got PTSD. But no longer your favorite park. It's beautiful. It's, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. We it's can't it. go no back. No longer your favorite park to camp in. <laughs> yeah, we can't camp. I'll visit. It's be- in the daylight. <laughs> it's great. It's great. In the daylight, it's great. So we're actually... It's just- been great. We're at the end. This has just been wonderful. I know, but I'm sad. I know. Because we're, know. we're not just done with our episode today on the podcast. We want to thank all of our guests for being here. You guys did a fantastic job. I feel a lot smarter. I do, too. Yeah. I know. But we are at the end of our podcast series for this year. So time flies when you're having fun. Yep. We've learned a lot. You're running from fishers. Time flies. So our season may be over. But there are many good seasons just beginning in Minnesota. So you've got pheasant, deer, waterfall hunting, as we say in Minnesota. (laughs) And not to mention the glorious Minnesota fall and the first snowflakes of winter. So get out there. Explore a prairie near you. Jess, you want to do this again next year? Yeah, of course. I'll see you right here next year. All right, sounds good. Catch us on the prairie pod.